Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This is Save the Nation on ADH-TV. I'm David Flint, and I have uh, once again uh, a really wonderful commentator, Gregory Copley, based in Washington, an Australian who was described by the founding president of the Heritage Foundation as one of America's foremost strategists. And uh, he, he has a, an extraordinary record in commentary and in publication. His latest book, the latest of 36 books, is The New Total War of the 21st Century, which has proved to be a really important piece of work. Greg, I'd like to begin, and welcome, Greg, I'd like to begin with a comment you made about Africa, where you said that uh, uh, the hope for democracy is receding there in proportion to the loss of influence of the Western powers. What's the situation there in Africa? Well, it is not something which was unforeseen. We've, we've been witnessing the decline in uh, Western powers' influence uh, in Africa for the past decade or more and the rise of the People's Republic of China's influence there. Uh, I wouldn't say that uh, Beijing is at the top of its game in Africa, but it is offering more than the West can offer. But uh, almost exactly three years ago, I, I wrote a report saying that the uh, respect for the democratic processes in Africa was now at an end, and we were back to an era of, of coup d'etats as a form of um, governmental change, shall we say. Uh, so that situation has really come to pass. The last three years have seen a lot of African countries uh, changing their government or retaining their government through the falsification of elections, the use of military and police force uh, to intimidate voters and the like. We, we saw it in the Nigerian presidential elections on February 25th, uh, and particularly we've just seen it 
in the Sierra Leone presidential elections of uh, June 24th. Uh, what we saw there was, if you like, uh, President Julius Mada-Bio, a former Army Brigadier General, um, who I know, actually, and he went about going for re-election for a second term as president with all of the guns blazing, literally. Uh, there were three or four uh, attempts to uh, assassinate his principal opponent, Dr. Samara uh, Kamara. Uh, so that was actually quite profound because the military and the police were used in those assassination attempts, the presidential guard and the, and the like. And they were in uniform. They were being videotaped by bystanders. Uh, and the last attempt on Dr. Kamara's life was the day after the June 24th poll closed when it looked as though by some fluke Dr. Kamara could be a declared winner of the election. In fact, that day, Dr. Kamara and his deputy did come out with a press statement saying that they claimed victory in the election. So uh, President Bio was desperate that this should not occur. Uh, he had paid the election commissioner uh, handsomely uh, and actually wanted him to step up the process of announcing the, the election results uh, to uh, January 20, uh, sorry, June 25th, 26th, uh, and even held a gun to the head of the elect election commissioner, uh, which didn't prove to be necessary because the election commissioner did as he was paid to do anyway, which was to announce Bio as the winner. Uh, the unfortunate thing for President Bio was that the, the whole process was so scandalously rigged that none of the international observer missions, that included the Carter Institute from the United States, uh, official election monitoring teams from the United Kingdom, Ireland, Italy, Germany, and France, uh, plus the European Union's own monitoring team, all said that they would not certify the elections as free and fair or transparent. So uh, President Bio uh, looked as though he was gonna be cut off from any Western recognition, but, still persists with his claim of election victory. Uh, his neighbor, uh, the president of Guinea, was getting set to come in and, and uh, perhaps seize some uh, Sierra Leonean territory. And he said he would go in and arrest Bio in the capital Freetown. Uh, that didn't happen, but President Bio did go to Conakry, the capital of Guinea, to negotiate with uh, the interim president of Guinea, who is also a military uh, president. Just to uh, and, interrupt and to you, if I may, on that, uh, this is fascinating, but uh, I can remember the sole interest that Australia seemed to have in Africa generally a few years ago under the Rudd government when they sent the Governor-General round to visit a number of countries. And it seemed to be purely to get votes for our position on the Security Council. What is the interest of Western powers in Africa? Is it just uh, strategic? Is it uh, minerals? What, what is the interest of the great powers in Africa these days? Well, you say uh, ju just uh, uh, minerals and just economic. <laughs> it's profoundly important economically uh, as well as geopolitically because you, you can't access, for example, the Mediterranean, Red Sea, Suez, sea links without you know, uh, taking into account the fact that African states dominate, you know, part of that coastline. Uh, if you want to go 
from the Atlantic to the uh, Indian Ocean, you, uh, without going through the Suez, you, you have to go around the Cape of Good Hope in, in South Africa. Uh, so basically, that's very important. But the African continent is immensely wealthy in minerals, and particularly in some of the more rare minerals, which the People's Republic of China have been trying to dominate, particularly out of um, the Democratic Republic of Congo, the old Zaire. Mm. So th there, there's huge um, mineral resources there, including gold and diamonds, as well as the rare earth minerals and the like. Uh, so uh, that's, that's why, for example, the Russian Wagner Group is sending its mercenaries into a number of sub-Saharan and North African and Horn of Africa countries uh, to uh, literally provide aid to those governments in order for Russia to get its hands on some of the key strategic minerals, but particularly gold. Russia has been taking gold out of Africa at a large rate of late. So um, Af Africa is also growing in population. There are only two areas in the world where the core populations are growing, and that's India and Africa. Well, that is uh, fascinating, so, and they're wonderful people. I spent a little time a few years ago in Nigeria, and I was very mm -hmm. impressed by the people, but not impressed by the form of governance, which is unfortunate for the people because they, they seem to be the subject of uh, extraction by politicians rather than good governance. But get, getting, uh, you've just mentioned the Wagner Group, or is it the Wagner Group? Uh, and uh, their role as mercenaries of the old Soviet Union, now Russia. What in this tour d'horizon that you're, you've graciously agreed to give us about world affairs, what is happening in Russia? We seem to be having a coup. There seemed to be a march on Moscow. And now there's been uh, an arrangement uh, between them and uh, Mr. What's his name? Prigozhin. Mr. Yuznevi Prigozhin seems to be now in Bielorussia, and uh, the Wagner Group, is the Wagner Group being disbanded? What, what is going on? No. No, in fact, um, um, you know, to, to all of the Western reporting about the m mutiny by the Ukrainian, or by some of the Ukrainian elements of the Wagner Group, uh, all you can say to the Western reporting of that is stuff and nonsense. The Wagner Group was not, it did a great job for Russian forces in the Ukraine. It was able, because it lacked the, the uh, bureaucracy of the Russian armed forces, was able to go and achieve things which the Russian armed forces could at, for a period of time. However, it had reached the end of its useful life in Ukraine, and the Russian Ministry of Defence, with Putin's full approval, said that the contract with Wagner Group had to come to an end and the, the Wagner personnel in Ukraine would have to sign contracts with the Russian Ministry of Defence. Um, you've got to remember that Evgeny Prigozhin, like Eric Prince at Blackwater, the US mercenary company, um, he, he made, they became very rich from these contracts. Prigozhin saw the end of a massive cash flow with the ending of his contract. So he decided to make a statement. He made it clear when he initiated his so-called mutiny or so-called protest was that he was not 
against Russia or the Russian government, and certainly he wasn't against President Putin. Uh, things got out of hand. He he said he had 25,000 troops that he was going to take out of Ukraine and go uh, into Rostov-on-Don, which is the southern uh, command area. Uh, and the reality was he came out of Ukraine with about 4,000 men, uh, virtually all either enlisted personnel or NCOs, non-commissioned officers, no officers, uh, because the officers said, hey, we're, we're here as professionals. We'll, we'll go and sign on with the Ministry of Defence. Mm -hmm. So this, this so-called invasion of, of Russia by, by uh, Prigozhin was nothing of the kind. It was, it was a protest. Uh, Evgeny Prigozhin was foolish in the extreme in thinking that he could get away with this simply because he embarrassed his best friend, Vladimir Putin. And Putin could not allow that to stand. So they, they did it, and then particularly when in this whole insulting episode, uh, his trigger-happy fighters shot down some Russian helicopters and a command and control aircraft in Aleutian 22. Uh, the reality was that the Russian armed forces paved the way for Prigozhin to leave Ukraine because it was felt that you know, getting him out would be fine. They put no troops in his path. He was able to go into Rostov-on-Don and, as he said, uh, not a shot fired. No, there was nobody there at uh, the Southern District Command Headquarters. He went in, took over the office, and then decided to go up to Moscow. Greg, uh, and uh, uh, this, is, this is incredible that uh, a modern power is using what is, in fact, a mercenary. Is, it, is he not a mercenary? Yes, but the United States in Iraq and Afghanistan was using as as big or bigger mercenary forces with Blackwater and, and other private military contractors. So this is a, a standard way of operating, and uh, particularly uh, since medieval times, but it's, it's been continuing ever after. Uh, the West and others have been using mercenary forces in Africa. African leaders have hired mercenary forces themselves to bolster their military capabilities when they didn't have enough resources or trust in their military at home. So this is, this is, there's nothing new with this. I thought uh, we had to the, go back to Elizabeth I for the British to be using mercenaries. Were they using mercenaries in their dominant period, the 19th century? Well, if you look at the East India Company operating in the Indian subcontinent, uh, that was a private military contractor. And, and they so had to wait for the mutiny did. to dissolve the company, did they not? In, in the was, middle exactly, of the century. And, and, and that was a real mutiny. That was one which was aimed against the, Brit, uh, the British politically by the sepoy, uh, who, sepoys who revolted against uh, their, their East India Company command. So that was actually quite serious. It was far more serious than the Wagner little, uh, you know, uh, mutiny in a teacup. Uh, the, the reality was that of course, even the the um, the mutiny, the sepoy mutiny, uh, in uh, was didn't change British control of India. In fact, it was another hundred years before Britain voluntarily decided to leave India, uh, largely because it was was broke after World War Two. Mm. But you had you've had mutinies in various other forces. The Royal Navy had a mutiny in 1918, 1919, when uh, uh, sailors objected to being posted to the Baltic 
after the end of World War One. You had another uh, British mutiny in the Royal Navy, the Invergordon Mutiny, which I think was 1931, that involved about a thousand uh, naval personnel that was put down. Uh, so you have these these mutinies and revolts at various scales um, going on, and, and those were real mutinies because they were within the formal armed forces who have signed uh, who had signed documents declaring their their loyalty to the crown or the, the government of the day. And, of course, you had the 1905 Potemkin uh, mutiny in the Russian battleship Potemkin. Um, and, and that was, in hindsight, that was claimed to be the start of the Russian Revolution, which was n nothing of the kind. It was just a small uprising which was immediately put down. R the reality is that mutinies of this scale are really not important. What was really important was the mutiny of 100,000 French soldiers right at the front, the Western Front in World War I in 1917. And uh, as a result, to divert German attention, you had General Haig committing massive numbers of, of uh, Empire troops, including Australians, up on the Somme to draw the Germans away from the French section of the front uh, so that uh, the French could get control of this, th their own mutiny. So that was, again, that was a real mutiny. And yet, because of this incredible, almost pathetic hatred which has been generated in the West against Putin, they want to make sure this is make the, the Wagner mutiny out to be something really important. Now, P Putin knew that he had to bring this mutiny to a head, and he did so. Um, now, did he, did he get embarrassed by it? Was he angry about it? Absolutely. But the reality is, and what we've seen, is that Prigozhin went to Belarus, and he had a, a, a whole military base given to him just near uh, Minsk, the capital of Belarus, um, and, a, and a number of his fighters left Ukraine and went to that base. Prigozhin, is Belarus, uh, if, I, if I could interrupt you, is Belarus a, a satellite of uh, Russia? Well, uh, you could call it a satellite. It's, uh, it's an independent uh, country. Uh, it's literally a communist country, and uh, which is why uh, uh, Putin will not allow it to become part of Russia because they they have sought to be to rejoin with Russia, and Russia is not happy about having communists uh, in uh, in power in anywhere in the Russian Federation. So it's an, it's a sovereign country. It's absolutely allied. Uh, to Russia, largely for historical reasons. You would not classify. Not, that, you would not classify Putin as a communist now. Then, oh, Putin is absolutely anti-communist, as well as Yeltsin. They were members of the party, but these were part of a of a uh, of a movement in the Soviet armed forces and intelligence services called Pamyat, which means memory. So the Pamyat movement was ultranationalist. And these were working to undermine the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and, and uh, people such as uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, for example. So they were absolutely committed to destroying the Communist Party. They were the best allies that West ever had. We were tracking the Pamyat people as much as we could uh, from our offices in, in uh, the US uh, during, the during the 1970s and 80s, particularly the 80s. Um, so... You've got that situation now where back in, in Belarus, you've got Prigozhin and Wagner Group. Prigozhin went 
uh, to Russia yesterday and was given uh, stockpiles of his weapons from that were owned by his company and they've been moved to Belarus. And you'd say, well, if Russia was really angry about Wagner, why would they do that? Well, the reality is that Wagner is a vital tool for the Russian government to project discrete power into places like Libya, Syria, Mali, Chad, Eritrea, Ethiopia and the like, where Wagner uh, contractors are working either at the behest of the Russian government or are paid by the host uh, government to, to do security work. So uh, we're, we're seeing this whole thing beaten up into a, a simplistically driven story to, in order to vilify Putin and to say that the Russian government's about to collapse. The reality is that Russia is getting stronger and stronger uh, and Ukraine is getting weaker and weaker, apart from the fact that it's, it's totally dependent on the West and particularly the Biden administration to give it weapons. It's been very effective. But at some stage, the West is going to stop giving weapons to Ukraine simply because there's no point in continuing to give them weapons. And especially at a time when the AUKUS countries, UK, US, Australia and others, need to get their forces built up with plenty of ammunition stocks for possible conflict in the Indo-Pacific against the People's Republic of China. The West is absolutely ill-equipped at this stage to confront the People's Republic of China. I, I'm not saying that the PRC itself isn't very weak and very haphazard in its approach, but the West is not doing a good job. In the Pentagon, there's a great concern that vital assets and funds have been diverted from US defense readiness and given to the Ukrainians who have basically stolen most of the money. There's been massive corruption. And of course, even going into this conflict, Ukraine was listed as the most corrupt country in the world. So where, where, you, do you expect, all... uh, where do you expect uh, the situation to go in the Ukraine if the West reduces its uh, assistance to the Ukrainian government? Well, the only thing stopping a negotiated settlement to this war is the fact that President Biden is continuing to insist on giving advanced weapons to the Ukrainian forces. Um, let's face it, uh, the, what you have in, in Russia is great strategic depth, industrial capacity and the like. They may not have deployed it as effectively as, say, the West could have done. The West is not doing a good job itself these days either. But but let's face it, Russia does have that great wealth. Its currency is one of the most stable in the world, largely because it's got the biggest gold reserves in the world. They're getting ready to create this new BRICS currency, which will start to break the monopoly of the, the US dollar as the trading instrument. And what we've seen, and I think I sent you a report that we produced on this, is that Russia has now finally been able to achieve its great north-south corridor going through Iran. Now, this was always the, uh, the object of the great game, which was uh, run from the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries between Great Britain out of British India and the Imperial Russian and then the Soviet governments. Uh, Russia and then later the Soviet Union wanted direct access overland to the Indian Ocean, a warm water port, so that they would have year-round access to naval and, and marine trade activities. 
now they have it because Jimmy Carter made sure that we, the West lost its, its favoured status with Iran and Iran was taken over by uh, the, the clerics uh, who have done no favours for Iran. But now those clerics, in order to survive, have sold their souls to the Russian Federation. And so you've got this new uh, maritime and road and rail uh, transit link which goes from St. Petersburg up on the Baltic down through the river systems with large ships. I mean, we're talking about 500-foot ships going down to Moscow, then down uh, to uh, the the Caspian Sea uh, and across the Caspian and also down through Dagestan and Azerbaijan to Iran where they're just building massive new rail links funded largely by Russia down to uh, the uh, Iranian ports at the Straits of Hormuz and I would say potentially just to the east of the Straits of Hormuz where I believe we will start to see a new Russian naval base built on the Indian Ocean, uh, much like the Russian naval base in Tartus in Syria in the Mediterranean. Yes. So, so you're, you're describing, major... yes, you're, you're yeah. describing a, a, a Russia increasing in strength. Where will the succession go? One day Putin will no longer be leader at some stage. Mm. How will he be succeeded? What will determine the succession? Well, that's always the problem when you have a situation where you don't dare to build in a succession base. And you have that even more the case in the People's Republic of China, where uh, Xi Jinping absolutely destroyed all of his opponents so that there is nobody to question him, nobody to succeed him. Uh, the goal there is that if you uh, that, he, that he can make all the decisions. Of course, that makes the world very vulnerable to a man who can make critical decisions yes. without any accountability. On that, uh, you wrote very interestingly in drawing an analogy between Xi and Galtieri in, uh, in Argentina, and you also pointed to problems of alcoholism or alcohol, mm. which applied apparently to Galtieri, which I wasn't aware of, and uh, you suggested that in relation to the dictator, Xi, in China. Yep. Well, I was heavily involved with uh, the, the South Atlantic War in 1982, uh, and we were watching Galtieri, and Galtieri was about to be thrown out of office because uh, his, his rule as the military dictator of Argentina was becoming chaotic. Uh, he was uh, drunk on frequent occasions, and... Uh, and typical of uh, someone in the th in the grips of alcoholism, prone to making uh, irrational last-minute decisions uh, and uh, committing to courses of action which he hasn't thought through, which was clearly the case with the Falklands War, because uh, you know the the British were just getting warmed up uh, when they when when the Argentine forces on the Falklands collapsed after their. Uh, unfortunate uh, invasion using a lot of poor young recruits with bad equipment who uh, who suffered. Now, I, I said in that recent report on, on Xi that he, he may be suffering from the Galtieri syndrome, just like Lieutenant General Galtieri, um, because he has eliminated all uh, possible... Um, breaking mechanisms. There, there's nobody around who is 
able to give him contrary advice or to caution him or to moderate his behavior. What we saw with his, with his actions when he was a young man, and, and, even, and even today, he is incredibly reserved. Uh, he keeps his own counsel. He doesn't, uh, doesn't share anything. He takes the, the, he wears his, if you like, his ideology on his sleeve, his Maoism on his sleeve. And so that, that's, uh, so you, that's what you assume is his true nature. But um, a number of his colleagues in his days, as a, in Xi's days, as a, as a young party bureaucrat, an up-and-coming leader, a princeling, um, said that they would drink with him on a regular basis. And there's one particular Chinese-Mongolian uh, Chinese, Chinese Mongolian, um, professor who's now in exile in Australia, a very articulate man who spent eight months uh, meeting on a regular basis with Xi Jinping uh, at, at the um, Long March restaurant just near the, the Beijing University. And they would uh, each drink a bottle of um, hard spirits, um, you know, with each meal. And what uh, Professor Yuan uh, Yongmin said was that once Xi Jinping got some liquor in him, he changed completely and started talking garrulously and uh, expressing his feelings in very harsh terms. I mean, he believed uh, that, for example, the loss of 400 million Chinese uh, to achieve a military objective like you know, capturing Taiwan was not too high a price to pay. So he's he's thinking in terms which most People's Liberation Army generals would would recoil from. Uh, so uh, just as well for Xi that he he keeps his counsel. So, so the question I raised in in this uh, psychological profile uh, or or study of, of the psychological profile that we were doing on Xi Jinping was how does the West, United States, Japan, uh, react to that? And um, one of the things about the Communist Party of China, which was different from the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, is that the, the uh, CCP in, in China tends to be more prone to factionalism and to uh, splitting off factions. Uh, in fact, the, the, uh, the Chinese communists have, a, they, they call it splittest tendencies. Um, so the question is, what is the West doing to split the PLA leadership on the, on the question of support for, for Xi Jinping? They're not going to come out and say anything. You're not going to get any open factions. By the way, just as you didn't see any open factionalism in the Soviet Union when the uh, uh, the memory group, the Pamyat movement, was building its war against the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. This is a life and death situation. You don't announce that you're um, you're building your case against your leader in a in a communist country because you, you won't survive the the night. So, so basically, yes, you, uh, you, you, you remind me of uh, what uh, happened under Stalin. One of the most dangerous places in the Soviet Union was to be close to Stalin, was it not? Because he would suspect yeah, every other member of the Politburo of plotting against him, whether they were plotting against him or not. That seemed to be the situation 
Is, is she more well, rational than Stalin was about potential opponents? Um, I don't think so. The, the, the fact that he has gone to massive lengths to destroy all of his opponents, even when they haven't shown hostility, uh, highlights to me what I, a degree of paranoia, which is um, not normal in a human being, but it may be necessary if you are a the sole leader of a communist country. You have to, you have to be paranoid in a sense. You have to suspect everybody and preemptively destroy your rivals or even somebody who uh, could be seen as capable uh, of, of uh, mounting a challenge or or even be seen as a capable successor. Now, I don't think you've got the same situation with Russia. I don't think. Uh, that Putin is paranoid in to that extent. I think if he was, he would have taken far greater uh, steps toward punishing Prigozhin of Wagner Group, uh, because you know. It, but he's tolerated this degree of insubordination, which I found was staggering, uh, which also shows that he has a great level of self confidence. And I don't believe that Xi Jinping has deep in his soul, a sense of, of um, uh, confidence. And I don't believe that he feels that the rule of the Communist Party is legitimate in China, just as the Soviets knew in their heart of hearts that, they, that the Tsar and God was going to come down one day and smite the godless communists because they really, um, whilst they professed an atheism, while they professed that they were now they now had a mandate to rule. They never really felt comfortable with that. They didn't. They knew that they were not legitimate. And in the case of the Communist Party of China, uh, the reality was that the civil war did not end in 1949. The Kuomintang, the nationalist government, m moved to Taiwan and remained intact as the Republic of China. And the Republic of China was the successor government to the imperial government of China. And the Republic of China honoured the, uh, the commitments to paying the debts and obligations of imperial China. The Communist Party has never accepted responsibility for the historic debts and liabilities and treaties of the predecessor government. Just, just, on, so that in point, a sense, just on that point, would you blame uh, successive American administrations for giving credence to the communist regime in China and giving them the status which uh, allowed them to advance themselves by not, uh, not continuing to support the nationalists as the true government of China. Absolutely. Um, now, the, there's been a lot of pragmatism within the Republic of China and the Taiwanese government uh, saying, well, look, it's clearly not going to happen that we're going to go back to the mainland. For, for decades after 1949, the cry, uh, the toast in every military mess dinner was back to the mainland. That's, they don't say that anymore. And in fact, the US government worked very strenuously to, to stop that thinking. Uh, the, the Republic of China Armed Forces uh, particularly under the guidance of the National Security Advisor to Chiang Kai-shek, uh, Vice Admiral Ge Tunhua, basically uh, planned amphibious operations to 
uh, get troops back onto the mainland because they felt that they, they could, re after a brief, brief respite on Taiwan, could get back into the fight. Bear in mind that they only they were only moved, pushed out of the mainland in 1949 because the nationalist forces had spent all of their energy and weapons and so on uh, and uh, fighting the Japanese, yes. whereas the communist Chinese did not fight the mm -hmm. Japanese. They let the nationalists do that fight. And in the parallel to Ukraine, of course, the end of World War II meant that the United States in particular stopped sending weapons at the same level, uh, weapons and support, to uh, General Generalismo Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang Army, the Nationalist Army. So, um, so you know, the parallel there is if, if the US does the same thing with Ukraine, which it will cut off the weapons, then Ukraine collapses. The question is, uh, you know, in, in the case of Ukraine, what can Zelensky do about it, President Zelensky of Ukraine? Uh, he, he knows that he can't afford to be seen to accept a defeat because he'll be, you know, dead or arrested yes. you know, overnight. Uh, so he's got to do a deal. Well, you've uh, pointed out uh, very interestingly and quite superbly the importance of leadership in these uh, countries which don't have democracy and the fact that succession is very difficult to to calculate or even realise how, how the succession will follow. We, we in the West, all Western countries except the United States, are all dependent on the leadership being in Washington, the leadership being American. The, the whole West depends on this. It's an internal election, of course, but we're fascinated by what will happen. And you've rightly pointed out the dangers of a leader of the United States who undermines his allies. And we saw that with Carter, as you rightly point out, in relation to Iran, where he pulled the rug under our best friend in that part of the world, the Shah, yeah. and allowed the, uh, mm. the uh, religious leaders to take over that country. Uh, we are coming up to a period when uh, this, this uh, administration will end, and uh, we're being told that Biden is going to contest the next election, and uh, it's likely that the Republican nomination will probably go to Donald Trump. It looks like it from uh, what is happening. How do you see this, the leadership of the West developing over the next, the remainder of this term and uh, into the next term? Well, basically, we, we have to start a set of reassessing the West and what it means. We have to start reassessing what we think we mean by democracy uh, and uh, what we think of as an informed electorate as opposed to a, an electorate which has been conditioned by mass psychosis one way or another to behave, to follow certain uh, political demagogues. Um, the, the reality is that we also don't have leaders in the West. We don't have them in Australia. We don't have them in the United States or Great Britain or France or anything uh, because leaders frighten people. Leaders take you into dark places of change. They take you into an unknown future um, and as a result, societies really don't want to see um, leaders emerging because 
uh, unless there's a, a real problem that has to be addressed, which is why Churchill was only brought in uh, for the war cabinet after the start of World War II, uh, because he scared people. He was he was not seen as uh, someone who would take a lot of advice. He was going to do things with rashness and verve. Um, and of course, with, he also had a Trump record, thing. didn't he? He also had a record. Yes. Uh, he was uh, he was attributed with all the faults of what happened at Gallipoli, although the policy. The strategy of uh, cutting off Turkey was obviously the strategy that one would follow. It was the actual delivery of that strategy which was wrong. But uh, does that uh, explain a lot of the does it, does it explain a lot of the uh, antipathy towards uh, President Trump when he was in power? People seem to almost irrationally hate him. I found both in Australia yeah. and the United States and other countries. And uh, does that explain it, that they were frightened of him? Oh, I think people are always frightened uh, by someone promising change. Um, yes, so, so you have the, the situation, though, where you have uh, irrational hatred of Trump and irrational love of Trump. I mean, they, they're, they're all uh, at extreme. <laughs> well done. And, and, of course, that not only, yeah, and that not only governed uh, the, the Republicans, as well, because a lot of Republican never Trumpers, but it it uh, drove the uh, election in favour of Biden because the simple reason that he wasn't Trump. And there's no question that if he runs again, he'll get a lot of votes because he's not Trump. The, the Democratic Party, however, is extremely concerned about this because they recognise that if he does proceed to the election with Kamala Harris as his vice presidential uh, running mate, he is likely to be removed for medical reasons from the presidency, either if it doesn't happen before the end of this term, early in the second term. And one of the things that the, the Democratic Party uh, back, back room boys cannot abide is the thought of Kamala Harris becoming president. This is one of the, this is one of the weaknesses, isn't it, of uh, the succession to the presidency in America in contrast to the way the Westminster system, the Westminster system allows enormous mm. choice when there is a collapse yes. in the prime ministership of somebody and that worked very well during the period of British dominance. We saw the ease with no, which question. they moved from Chamberlain to Churchill, for example which you couldn't have well, in even, the American system. Uh, no, uh, you even saw when when you had a conservative majority in Britain in recent years, they moved to, uh, from one prime minister to the, to another to another. Um, As we do in, in Australia. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So you can change your um, leadership without having to go back to the, to the electorate but it's still the people who were voted in by the electorate. There's no question that the Westminster system is far more um, in touch with the grassroots communities of, of the countries. Look, one of the problems with Nigeria, we talk about the collapse of democracy in Africa. One of the reasons for the collapse of democracy in, in Nigeria, which needed to build a consensus across about 750 different ethnic groups and tribes and, and languages and so on, 
was that they had a parliamentary system which had the politicians close to the public. Uh, President Clinton of the United States insisted that they change that system to one which mirrored totally the US system. As a result, you have a massive increase in corruption. Uh, you have the uh, politicians who are not close to the, to the grassroots population. So naturally, you have this incredible disregard of Abuja, the capital, and the politicians by the average Nigerian. I detect, Nigeria uh, as is a, the biggest. Yes, as a final question, because we're running out of time, I detect from that uh, your, uh, your belief that a constitutional monarchy with the Westminster system is probably the smoothest system of government in contrast with, say, the American did system. Did you divine that from my comments or from the fact that my tie has lots of crowns on it? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but there's no question. Constitutional monarchies provide stability. They provide a continuity of the transfer of power from one generation to the next, and they allow for political debate, which can range in extremes to left and right, without destroying the country. Uh, to, to do without the constitutional monarchy in Australia or Britain or Canada, New Zealand and the like, would be to consign those countries to short-term materialist transactional uh, government governance, which would drive the country into meaninglessness and greed and without a, a concept of nobility and thought for the future. And, and thought for the future can only occur with thought for the past. Is, and on that point, I'm afraid uh, time has run out, but I must thank you so much for giving us such a, a refreshingly different view of a number of major events in the world and justifying your, the position you're taking so well. Uh, once again, I must thank you for your time. Greg, you've been marvellous. And uh, I must say to the, to the uh, viewers, this is uh, ADH TV, and this is Save the Nation, and I'm David Flint, and until next time, thank you.